The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave Edwards from Sonder Studio. We created Sonder Studio to empower humans in our complex age of machines and data. Our research-based, design-oriented consulting and education services help you and your organization work better with machines and data. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com. The world has been upended by the introduction of generative AI. We think this could be the largest advance in technology ever. All of our clients are trying to figure out what to do, how to de-risk the introduction of these technologies, and how to design new innovative solutions. To get a perspective on these changes created by AI, we talked with Lucas Egger, who leads the Innovation Office and Strategic Projects team at SAP Signavio, where he focuses on de-risking new product ideas and establishing best-in-class product discovery practices. With a successful track record in team building and managing challenging projects, Lucas has expertise in data-driven technology, cloud-native development, and has created and implemented new product discovery methodologies. Excelling at bridging the gap between technical and business teams, he has worked in AI, operations, and product management in fast-growth environments. Lucas has movie credits for his work in computer graphics research, published a book on philosophy, and is passionate about the intersection of technology and people, regularly speaking on how to improve organizations. We love Lucas's concept that we are in the peacock phase of generative AI when everyone is trying to show off their colorful feathers and not yet showing off new value creation. We enjoy talking with Lucas about his views on the realities of today and his forecasts and speculations on the future. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Let's start with what's going on, what's so different. You've written a whole series of posts on LinkedIn about uh, large language models. Um, Perhaps you can just give us a bit of your sort of most up-to-date thoughts of how this technology is changing the world around us. Yeah. So first, um, I would say whatever I'm about to say, most likely in six months from now, um, I will have been proven wrong, right? So that's what it feels today. I feel like that's um, aggressive because... to say six months. I'd say six weeks, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's okay. You're, <laughs> that's good. Good confidence. I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the disclosure about that. Um, writing about LLMs for me was more of an exercise because normally in my job, so I lead an innovation office and we try to de-risk new ideas. Normally, I feel like I have a grasp on things in a way. We have methodologies. We look at desirability, feasibility, viability, agreeability, and we have a whole slew of methodologies, artifacts, and little ways how to reduce the risk and make sense of what's happening. 
um, with large language models. In the last couple of months, what really happened was that there, like this kind of equation got upended. What do I mean by that? So first of all, there was like a, a quite the difference in terms of the technology because there was some weird overhanging capability. Normally, we already know like, oh, we would love to do this. The customer wants that. And we have like a strategically aligned set of ideas that we want to pursue. And all of a sudden from left field came capabilities and we didn't really understand how to make sense of them. Then the next thing that happened was that um, it was way like qualitatively different than what we thought would happen, right? So like a couple of years ago, everybody was betting on automation of like manual labor or road and boring tasks. Now we live in a world where the most creative work is the one that seems to be in danger of like having the biggest disruption. So writing about large language models for me has been a way of trying to make sense. And I guess I'm not alone in that because even people who do nothing else but working with these kind of models feel like that the relentless acceleration of the pace has been like bigger or more pronounced than what they have experienced before. I do have a theory um, if we want to go into that. Like one of the explanations is that obviously there's always reinforcing feedback loops, right? If you see there's like a gravitational well of value that can, you know, pull you in. But in addition, one thing that I think has dramatically changed five or 10 years ago, the field where I worked in AI or machine learning, data science, what we called it back then in the old days, right? Was vision, was um, NLP, were different fields. And now we have seen that a lot of all of these endeavors have collapsed into some form of language representation. And whether it's coding, whether it's generating pictures, there seems to be a unified language that really connects those fields. And now all of the interesting ideas and the little advancements come together under the umbrella of large language models in a sense, together with the normal acceleration of uh, hardware and all the other effects, it feels like we're having an over exponential, like not just a sim simple exponential, but multiple time stacked exponential situation right now. But since I'm talking so much, you can infer that I haven't figured it out because as the adage goes, I'm sorry I was taking so long. I, had, uh, I just hadn't had enough time. <laughs> The thing, one of the things that always strikes me that strikes me about this particular moment in time um, is that there are so many things coming together at once. And I was wondering if you have some sort of first principles that you end up going back to as you as you wrote the as you wrote the blogs as you think about this first principles around um, you know say everything from kind of the the, the importance of efficient compute to um, the the fact that, as you referred to, these multimodal models are, are changing the way that we think about the way the intelligence gets put together and how it gets put back at us, about um, first principles about how humans interact with technology. Are those, how, how have you thought about some of those sort of grounding principles? Mm -hmm. um, thank you for the question. Uh, super interesting question. 
to ask not like what's happening, but how do we make sense and what is the structured approach? Um, I have to put in a little bit of hindsight bias, right? And pretend that I knew those things when in reality I didn't. Um, I was largely motivated by curiosity. And I felt like, oh, there's things that where the entropy of the information was greater than I expected it, right? So there was like, oh, wow, this is, this is interesting. I had thought about it. And then I tried to incorporate it. And I will give examples. But I do want to jump forward a little bit because right now there's two phases. We started with it. And now what I call the peacock phase, you know, every company is rallying and trying to show that they're capable of executing on this vision and to try to operationalize this technology as quickly as possible. Get this technology in. Let's connect an API. Let's see where the low-hanging fruits are. And I think that's fair because already that is some sort of fitness function and it shows the prowess in terms of executional capabilities of a company. Fair. But I think what was more interesting to me is the second order effects. So... That's where the first principle ideas come into play that you were alluding to. And as a first approximation of tackling the problem, what we are doing, what I'm doing in my job, you know, thinking about innovation and our strategy is to think about where are currently the value flows and the jobs to be done. Like what are really the jobs that we do for our customers? Because most companies are not selling what they think they're providing in terms of value, right? That's, for most companies, I would argue that's true. So we're trying to better understand the reality of the holistic value generation that we can provide and then juxtapose it with the strategic modes that we believe will end up being in place after we have adopted some of the technology. Now, this sounds all a bit aloof, let me give you like two or three like ideas how to work into that. So one of the things that we believe, I believe, is that the content creation cost will converge towards marginal or zero costs. I'm not saying that content will be without value. I'm just saying that the creation of content will get cheaper. Now, what does that imply? It implies that probably if there is so much more content that some sort of assurance or trust in the right content will be much more expensive or more valuable. So we're then thinking about, okay, if creation gets cheap, but trust becomes more expensive or more valuable, what of our value flow or what, how we provide value, what can be defensible, right? As a competitive innovative advantage that's not easily disrupted and, and we try to work through the problem in that way. So that's, let's say, the business perspective. If I have my classes, like, okay, corporate strategy, how do we tackle it? On the personal level, the things that I try to approach is I try to find similar ideas in the past to give me a reference frame. And then, because the intuitions are very off, right? I, I'm, I'm not trusting my own intuitions when somebody says like, hey, we have something smart, but I can look back and I can go like, hey, was it a good time to be an author before or after the printing press? Now, there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a mismoner because the, the job of an author, you know, came to being much later. But what I'm trying to say is 
were more people engaged in creating books and narratives after the printing press was invented than before. So I'm trying to come up with analogies that help guide me on the personal level to make better sense. And then the third pillar is what really piques my interest. And for instance, one of the things that piques my interest is that I believe that AI and large language models will change our perception of products and will create a relationship between consumers and a product that is highly overloaded on the emotional plane, right? It will feel like a relationship and less of a product. So everything that for 50 years brands have been trying to do, overload their like brand perception with emotions, will now come not only full circle, but in full force, right? And you will feel like, ah, I'm not just using a different browser, like I was cut off from my relationship in a sense. So first principle thinking with value flows, there is analogies to make sense. And then thirdly, there is like the things that I feel like, wow, they're substantially different and I, I, I'm, my curiosity should lead the way and, 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 and thinking about it. Is that because we're going to start, uh, the language interface is going to prompt us to anthropomorphize products that we wouldn't have before? Is that what you mean? I think that is one of the parts, but um, I think it goes deeper than that. I think there is, you know, there's this uncanny valley. There is like this tendency if something tries to be naturalistic or let's say look like a face. If it's a mere abstraction, we see like, oh, look at the car. It has a nice smile or whatever, right? Uh, and it makes sense to us intuitively to talk about it that way. Now, if we create, let's say, the image of a face, if it's perfect, we really like it. But if it's just not perfect, it feels like this uncanny valley where we feel alienated and we don't like it. You could say now, hey, everybody will have like an interaction and we want to have this relationship. What, I, what I'm trying to say is like we are primed, our operating system, our brains, our emotions. We want to connect. So if a product is capable of reacting on an emotional level, it will happen automatically because we are in a way programmed to seek out emotional bonds for various reasons. I'm not a psychologist or, you know, evolutionary, like I'm, I can't give you like all the research, but it seems like we're really built up to that. And now here comes the second part that is important to me and which you probably alluded in your question is if you have something where, where people have like a, like already a tendency, it's very, very easy. I don't want to say exploit, but it's very easy to capitalize on it. Like right now, if you have a customer that loves your product, that is really a raging fan, that's the best for your business, right? Word of mouth, everything else. So as soon as products are more capable of creating an emotional bond, every company would want to position their products with that feature because it creates more loyal customers and uh, a better offering from their perspective right so i think we want it and the companies will just then double down on it i think it's interesting it's um some number of years ago i'm trying to remember when it was we posed the question of when will a voice ai um have voice sort of using the the second use of voice like you talk about the voice of a poet or the voice of a writer when will it have its own voice and we're close to that. You can ask these LLMs to um, uh, 
to um, to absorb a persona and be able to talk, you know, so, um, anything from, you know, um, you're a, you're a, you're a happy customer service agent to, um, a friend, a friend of ours did a whole series with chat GPT and it said, give me, give me every response, like a tech bro. And so chat GPT said, yeah, bro. And that was all it did <laughs> for a while. Um, and I've worked on trying to adopt voices as well, but it's, it's so I've, you know, uh, respond back in the voice of, um, Apple and Shiat Day, which was, you know, the, 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 all the iconic, um, uh, advertisements was always a collaboration between Apple and Shiat Day for a very long time, but it, it's still, it's still mimicking, right? So you can, you could ask it to, uh, respond to the voice of SAP, and it will look at all the language that SAP's ever generated and and try to respond to it. What's interesting, and I wonder when this will happen, and not an if, because I assume someone will be, is how you can create a unique new voice, right? When can you actually craft a new voice that is not just adopting, you know, what it's learned from scouring the internet in the past, but actually create a new idea, a new persona, a new you know, a new thing, a new voice for for a brand. I think all of that gets to kind of your point, though, which is that, at least as I hear it, is we're going to have these systems that do speak like the organizations that we um, that we work for. And so you will have this sort of conversation, which is not so stilted, um, but it actually starts to feel like an expression of the brand. And that's a fascinating journey. I think we're at the beginning of it because it's going to take a while to really be good at it. But I think it's a really fascinating thing to think about in terms of the future of innovation. Not only that, I think I can give even a couple of pointers why it makes sense for a company to do it. Whether it's something we want, I want to be, I want to put a disclaimer out there. I'm not advocating for any of those things. My job is to understand what are the contingent possibilities possibilities that we're dealing with right um if you have a product that says i can decrease your order to cash process by x seconds you can put a very precise number on it and your roi will be hard capped by that number it's a very straightforward engagement if you have through whether it's an ai or any kind of proxy a relationship with your customer that is overloaded with emotion. Like this interface is the one that I want to call and talk to like 3 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday when something happened and the process broke down or something bad is, is happening. This is the one voice I trust. My pricing is not like bound by the five seconds on a medium cost basis per unit economics, whatever. The cost is all of a sudden, how much do you care about the ease of emotions or the ease of pain when you're in dire needs. And so I believe there is very, very strong incentives to create a relational based economic. If you have tools that are capable of doing it. That's a very interesting perspective. I like that. So essentially the, the ROI of creating a, uh, some sort of interaction is not, is not based on sort of pure task and efficiency. What you're saying is that the emotional connection that can be created can elevate that value because you're actually creating a connection with your customer in a way that is much more valuable. As you would think of having um, 
having how much more you know customers will pay for a fantastic you know field cert, you know systems engineer right the one who really understands the problem who can really come and actually give everybody comfort um, there's there's a high value in that personal interaction as well so I think once again like we we talked about three ways of making sense and the second one was to come up with ideas from the past that can guide you right um, like there was painters and paintings and then in the 19th century photography came along and in the beginning the photography was just an imitation of what painters used to do but very quickly because the craftsmanship the work and the cost of let's say a painting got much cheaper like it changed. So the value was less about the craft and the scene and became more about the narrative. The, like how can it evoke emotion or these kind of things? I'm pretty sure that for the next, let's say, I don't know, one, two, three, five years, we'll be stuck in this imitation phase. So I call it the peacock phase, just get it in. The next phase maybe is an imitation phase where we, hey, we had automation and prediction capabilities they are now steroids, so we want to do more of it. So we'll have like all of the quote-unquote normal optimization stuff. But since this technology is capable of more, I would wager that there is then a long tail which will double down on the capabilities. And it will not end in this imitation. So let's get better optimization. How can we offset tasks? How we can do this cheaper? It will then find ways of capitalizing or making good on the new capabilities, which I believe, for instance, not exclusively, but for instance, are about, let's say, the emotional side of, of services and trust. That was just one example. But, yeah. You talk about your innovation uh, office as, as having a, a primary role in de-risking. Or at least that's mm-hmm. one of the key focuses. How do you think about um, approaching LLMs um, from a de-risking perspective? Think about, you know, for instance, things like alignment. How do you think about de-risking that the LLM you're going to use is going to be out of alignment with the organization? Yeah. Wow. Um, to be honest, that's still too far out. Right now, most of my work with large language models is de-risking on, let's say, on a basis level. Right, which is really desirability, feasibility, not even viability, and not even agreeability. I would say we're still so desirability, trying to make the step from the mere get this like chat interface in and show that we can adopt it in our API suite and you know put it in front of the user to elevate it to something like what is actually the biggest win for a user and how can we make use of this technology, not just you know, plug it in, right? Feasibility, there are so many components which are not similar to the ones we dealt before, whether it's RLHF or others or retraining or there's so many new parts to this technology that just on it, how can we keep the technology in check that that's already a lot to do. And then I don't even want to start the Pandora box. Like I'm not even peeking in going like, GDPR, PII rights, and all of that stuff. That's whew, we're in for a wild ride. So I, I'm maybe not there yet. So I cannot really talk a lot about how we would do it on a practical level from a business perspective because. 
baby steps. And and I would I would say that most companies out there who claim that they already have figured it out don't know what they're talking about or doing it very poorly. Right now, what you talked about alignment, there is inner and outer alignment. Um, the outer alignment does the thing what we wanted to do. And I don't struggle so much there. I believe we'll have rather quick wins or we will have ideas on how to check out the alignment. The inner alignment, namely, is what an agent that we create actually incentivized to not pretend, but to really want what we wanted to do and what a play pretends to provide. Wow. There it gets A, philosophical, and B, really, really tricky. Um, I do think the current specter of, oh, this will all go terribly bad, is a natural reaction because it feels so alien and we feel threatened on a very, like, down to the core of our philosophy and identity as humans. Um, but I also have to say this is research in progress and it, it's not easy. It's it's a wicked problem, right? It's not just complicated or hard. It's a wicked problem. When you talk about the the emotional side of the, of um, the interactions with customers and and places to sort of advance that quickly, um, I mean, there's there's sort of obvious use cases in terms of which are more of the peacock ones that you mentioned, getting a chat st- stood up and seeing really how it's different than a previous chat, um, and. The, the question that pops into my mind is how will this amplify or change or um, make obsolete some of the metrics that matter when it comes to um, having you know, figuring out how to go forward with customers? Are we going to see really big changes in, in the way that we would look at, say, sentiment analysis or um, some of the the, the standard metrics around customer engagement because we get so much more context or is this more evolutionary as we sort of figure out how customers respond? I mean, it's probably both, but be interested in your thoughts on, on how we start, how we think about the, the kind of tangible metrics of, of customer engagement. I cannot give an easy answer, but I have at least like two ideas that can help us provide an, or gain an intuition. So the first thing is, I think it's a gradual slope of value, like how the accrual of value works. What do I mean by that? If you want to put out a self-driving car, which is in a world where like, if it breaks down or does something unexpected, it is really, really painful or casualty or like, you know, the downside is unproportional then the entire value is locked up in the Six Sigma part. So starting at 99.99999% accuracy or performance. With our technology, like our, in a sense, like this that we're talking about today, large language models, already we see value adds every step on the way. So I think we have a smooth transition curve and there will be applications. We don't have to wait for a revolution in like customer engagement or how that works. And it takes us three years. I think from now on every week, every day, there will be like little increments. So that's the one part. Now, the second part is I do think that in terms of adoption of new technologies, there is certain truths 
we first want to be in artistic control. First elevators used to be operated by people who worked levers, welcome people. But it was not because the technology wouldn't have supported an automatic like push a button or whatever and ride experience, but because it was so new that people who created the elevators wanted the consumers to feel safe and to learn the experience. Okay. Um, now, these days, there is like this, I'm not sure how they're called, port and hop elevators, where you don't push a button in the elevator, but rather you push a button up front and then it directs you. So we went from somebody is in full control to we're in control to we abdicate control, and but the outcome is better because the elevator ride is nicer, even if you don't have buttons in there any longer. So um, what do I, so how does it relate now to your question? I cannot really predict like all of the steps, but I think it will go through those phases. Why? Because there's incremental value at already. And I think it will go through first being in control, then some sort of artistic control guided experience, then getting away and, you know, abdicating or pushing over more and more responsibility. Now, why is a large language model even capable or interesting in this thing? Uh, or in this use case, because it can act as the super glue or connector between different domains. So whether it's an API or a different system, some sort of language, whether it's an API language, English, natural language, or something in between, a process language, it will understand it. So it can jump seamlessly and relate between those domains. And that's, I didn't really provide an answer, but I feel like I see where it is going, right? And and I, I would bet on this happening and, and changing. Well, I do like that analogy. I mean, I, I think about, I mean, it's a simple analogy, the elevator one, but maybe it's because I can, I'm old enough to remember a few elevators where there were still people operating. I once lived in a building, yes, with actual operators. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's no question that there are no elevators, elevator operators around anymore. But that next step, I think that's actually the interesting. That's the interesting one, is okay. So let's just assume that at the moment the eleva- the elevator operators are so called prompt engineers, and um, you know in a year from now there'll be buttons. But then, in how many years from now will it be like the elevators where it's not it's not about a single elevator going up and down according to the users in the elevator? It's actually about optimizing the system of elevators. And having the system of elevators, which is more like a sharing version of an LLM, in my mind, I'm thinking, thinking that how because to to like I, I you know I I love ChatGPT. I mean, I just it's just so incredibly helpful, as are many of the other large language models that that you can access in various ways. But it's only a one-on-one interaction. It's not providing. It doesn't help me resolve an argument with Dave. It's not connected into him, you know. It's like this sharing, this 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 collective intelligence that we could develop with a bit of help from from the smarts and these things is a really interesting way of of thinking about that that sort of three iterations of where these things might go um, to more of a collective intelligence, collective decision making, because um, we know that the, the the strength of humans and also the hard things is as our social brains is our social resolution our social imagination social creativity um and i think about that and it's nice to have that analogy of the of the 
the different ways of, of the elevators emerging. <laughs> just to add on to this, like two things I, I, I want to maybe throw in to just compound on what you just said, Helen. So first, I often try to say or think about what will not change, right? We are very obsessed about what are the things that will change. Things that will never change is people want stuff faster, cheaper, and easier. So there is an appetite to reduce complexity for the person, like for the human, for the consumer. So if there is an ability of this technology to simplify our interaction with whatever we want to achieve, it will gravitate towards it. It will take multiple steps. There's a lot of ways of getting there, right? Um, there's more examples like skeuomorphism and these kind of things, but we'll get there. And the the other thing um, about this this change is um, that also I I believe that it's more engineering challenges. Like when you, for instance, said about like our social interactions, I think having a system that can help you emphasize and talk to another person is a capability that's not explored, but already in the system. There's another part of that last stage when you're talking about the elevators, just to keep running with that, um, which is about, you know, the first step you're right, you're, you're counting on a person actually to get the test done. The second is you're sort of making your own choice of which elevator to get into. So I have my own sort of autonomy or agency of choosing which, which elevator is the most, is going to get me where I want to go, what the, the floor I want to get to quickly enough. And then the last one is I'm just, I'm being told where to go, which elevator to use. Um, and you can parallel that with, say, um, uh, travel. Uh, you know, it, we used to have to call the travel agent who would then go and arrange everything for us. And then we could call the airlines directly and make plane reservations. And eventually we got to things like Kayak and Expedia that will tell us which one is most efficient for us, right? It's, it's, it, it's sort of in that same pathway. And we, what's interesting is I've, I do wonder when we'll have a, um, some ability for some interim system um, to help us navigate which LLM to use and other things like that. Like you can start with, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, I've done some comparisons of saying, okay, I'm going to try um, this prompt and this task in chat GPT. And now I'm comparing it against open assistant, the, the new mm. um, open source system sure. that's come out of Berlin. Right. And so you could, I can go back and forth among all of these systems. Um, but when do I get, when do I have some, assistant help like the, the the centralized elevator system that says, I want to get this task done. And something says, aha, you're now going to take LLM, you know, otherwise known as, you know, elevator 11. And that's the way you're going to go because that's going to be your best task. And that's, that's a, there's a fascinating potential evolution because all of these LLMs are different. And we don't know yet what their comparative and relative strengths are, but they will, that will emerge over time, I think, that there will be some value uh, of using one or the other. But um, we, that's, think, that's a long way off. Oh, that's a really good point um, to steer the conversation. But once again, I, I, I don't proclaim to know the future, but I would again give like an example. I don't know the current clock speed of my computer. I have no idea. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I could have told you exactly how many megahertz my computer had because it was such a big thing. And I was so proud when I had my first Pentium 100 or whatever, right? Um, these days, we don't care about it because there was a regression to the mean as, you know, the 
potential alpha or difference between providers just leveled or plateaued off, like all of, let's say, the perceived value got shifted away from the raw, let's say, power, because that just narrowed out towards the user interface and the experience. That's why we're also now in an experience economy. And I do believe that will happen here again. For the next couple of years, there will be differences in terms of like, oh, if you want the picture, use Midjourney. It's much better than, or whatever, you know, plug in X, right? I'm not trying to uh, endorse anything here. Um, but I do believe that as soon as we hit like the first, let's say, tapering off of, of technological advancement, like we will not care, right? We also these days, do we really care about horsepowers? Maybe what, like three to 5% of the people who buy a car really think like horsepower, that's the thing I, I want to look at. But most people care about safety, convenience, cost, mileage, right? These things. And I think that's the way to go with LLMs as well. It will be very, like the same analogy. Yeah, we'll get we'll get more sophisticated comparisons based on how the LLMs exist within the system, right? Um, I love how yeah. you bring up the megahertz because um, I was at Apple during the whole era of the megahertz myth. It was the whole thing. The push of the keynote was to was to get out there and say megahertz didn't matter because that was the Intel story because there was so much else happening inside the Macintosh that was so important to driving, to driving performance, right? So, you know, uh, I'm personally, I've been using mid journey a lot. That's what our presentations were, where, you know, you have, you can have a wonderful experience of just flipping through and seeing all the images that we like grabbing out of, out of mid journey. But, uh, would that change, um, once, you know, stable diffusion is, is accelerated on the chip inside our Mac and our iPhone? Well, from a performance perspective, it probably would. Um, and if we're designing an app for a client, um, that's probably where you're going to want to go because that's what's, at, uh, you know, at the chip level, that kind of integration we, you know, haven't really seen yet. We started describe we've started describing it a little bit as the AIOS, as the uh, mm. these foundation models start to come together and they, be, they, they operate like an AIOS between the application developer and the world's data and the hardware, you know, the chips beneath it. Um, but we, it, it's still so early. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. I, I want to stress the point that you just said, because I think it's, it's very erudite. Like we are very early. If you think about GPT-4 for all intents and purposes, it's quarantined. It doesn't even have connection to the internet, right? Now, let me rattle off such some obvious things that we want from LLMs that currently like are still in the making, like persistent memory, like an agent system, plugins, like multimodality, all these things I would consider engineering challenges. Not, I'm not trying to take away from how hard it is to actually implement and create it. I'm just saying we have a playbook and people will work on it. We don't need like a messianic figure to bring us new technology to get to the next stage, right? So all of the things we're still like we're talking about the future and we're excited about it and we essentially are still with the quarantined version 0.1 right and we can already see the next 20 steps and i would be shocked absolutely shocked if there's not tons of emergent behavior as we add single capabilities I believe just putting in plug uh, plugins and memory and maybe two more things, not even changing this technology, 
will create an effect where we go like, whoa, this feels completely different. If I could maybe finish with one more question, sort of tapping your role uh, in innovation and, as you say, de-risking, which I do love, by the way. Um, if you had, you know, a, a CEO or a group of CEOs from other companies, not trying to, you know, sort of pick into your role at SAP, but if some a group came to you and asked for advice about how to think about this technology change that we're going through, um, what would, how would you, how would you advise them? How would you help them think through um, how to innovate, but also how to manage risk at the same time? Ah, that's that's a really tough question. Um, Okay, I will try my best. I would say essentially a lot of the things that you mentioned throughout this conversation. Um, and I would maybe, first of all, I would take away a little bit of the pressure. Like um, there's this analogy from um, Alice uh, um, in Wonderland where she meets the Red Queen and they're running. And yet they don't seem to be moving any step forward. And Alice starts talking to Requiem and says, like, we're running as fast as we can. We're not moving. And she says, well, you're in my land. Here it's very different. You have to run doubly as fast to just get anywhere. And I believe that's the felt experience of C executive level personnel with digitalization and now large language models. And I would first say, look, just because there is such a frenzy doesn't mean that we're right now deciding the future of your company. Because what we see is like the first wave. What capsizes a boat is never the first wave. It's the second or third, right? Okay. So take off a little bit of the emotional pressure and feeling like you're already too late or nothing can be done. The next thing is be like acknowledge that there are stages to it, whether it's peacock or imitation, whatever you want to call it, right? Then be really clear on what is your right to win and what is the core value proposition that you can defend or that you want to enable. And that takes time and smarts and it takes the knowledge and experience of those seasoned executives you cannot just log on to log on to twitter and say like okay i'm reading now about twitter and i'm an expert on llms and everything will be perfect no you have to do the work you have to go like what are our 10 top 10 assumptions whether it's like for instance this content creation cost convergence towards zero or whatnot look at the value streams, look at the strategy and really come up with a thought through comprehensive understanding. What are the things you want to do and not want to do? And then start small and start to gain the experience that enables you to take opportunities. So first lesson that felt like anxiety, angst, and, you know, like this feeling of if we're not doing it, we're already doing it. Second, don't fall into the imitation game or peacocking, whatever you want to call it, but really come up with something that is your own, that is our strategy for this disruption. And nobody else could have written it and nobody else can execute it. Because one thing is absolutely sure, this is an overhang of capabilities, i.e. it will create more opportunity to create value so in a sense, I would argue it's not a threat. 
it's an opportunity because you already have the relationship to clients. You already have the main understanding. You have now way more capability to create even more value. It's, it's an opportunity. And I think if you go through those steps and reframe it, I think then it should be something that excites you where you're not like, oh my God, I have to do this and this is horrible, but rather like, wow, like I'm winning. Like, this is amazing. I want to do this. And I think if you can start a project with that feeling, I want to do it and we're all excited. Um, that's the best you can start with because there is no assurances for success. There never are. But I, that's what I would recommend everyone to do. And once again, I danced my way around an answer, but honestly, that is the most honest answer I can provide at this moment in time. Oh, I think that's great. I think it's a great um, answer. It's great advice. Um, and uh, I, I think this has been, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to um, uh, checking in again in six months and seeing how accurate your uh, forecast is. <laughs> exactly. So we're, exactly. we're, we're going to write them all down and we're going we're gonna, to... No, no, but seriously, thank you so much. It's been great fun. Um, this is a huge transition and everything's moving so quickly that it's it's really uh, wonderful to be able to take a bit of a step back and think about it at a broader perspective. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and also to be such a important, interesting voice to talk about it because, you know, most media out there has a very singular view and I really enjoyed that you're covering more bases um, on such a high level. It is really a testimony to your work and, uh, and I'm very happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore. It's